Before we dive into the episode, I'd like to tell you about Storytel. It's an audiobook app with a strong and huge selection of Arabic and English books. For just $10 a month, you'll have access to all their audiobooks. And since we love to hook up our burger listeners, you can claim your 30-day free trial by downloading Storytel from the link in this episode's description. Thank you so much to Storytel for sponsoring our episode. Storytel. The books you love, anytime, anywhere. Welcome to a new episode on Hamburger Generation, Jilil Hamburger. Today's story comes from a podcasting OG. His name is Omar Tom, also known as OT. Omar takes us through his extraordinary journey through struggle and health from his teenage years that shaped him into the positive and hardworking entrepreneur he is today. I hope you enjoy this inspirational story about the life of OT. start this one let's start it at the beginning it's oh, always a, a good place right? to start <laughs> yeah because you know it's one of those things because it could start at the beginning or it could be very pulp fiction like or it could start in oh. the middle and then you go back and oh, come what, right what, 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 but um <laughs> i don't know if our listeners are that smart they're podcast listeners they're always that smart um <laughs> okay so uh just to kick it off so um i was i'm the only one out of my siblings born in sudan I was not only born there, but also quite old school, meaning it was a doula and my grandfather's house. So it wasn't even a hospital birth, you know. What's a doula? Oh, a uh, midwife. Like a midwife. Like a midwife. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, okay. <laughs> Damn, Isra, on top of it. How many siblings do you have? I'm the eldest of four boys, no sisters. Okay. Yeah. So, so you were the eldest and they went like old school with it. Yeah. Um, I think it was just the timing of the birth, if based on the stories i was told it was just they couldn't have they didn't have time to get me to a hospital so like yo it's got to go now okay so that's what we went with and <laughs> that's what we, went with. <laughs> we all decided well, you know, we kind of just agreed that that's how it's gonna go and three months later mom got on a plane and came out here my dad was already here so he wasn't there for my birth he was setting up his business um and ex- like a new branch and extension of his business is out here so once she was ready to fly we came out here so, at the age of two, uh, my mom felt like there was something wrong with me. She noticed that I still, as I was getting older, I was still wet the bed. As a child learning those, I should have already developed certain things, but it wasn't there. Okay, and you were an only child at this point? At this point, I was an only child. I think my she was just being pregnant with my second brother. Okay. So, she took me and my uncle, and he was like, well... It could be a kidney function. It could be a bladder function. He, um, Because he's a pe- uh, pediatrician, ran a few tests. He's like, all right, these are my thoughts on it. But you should go to an expert. Take him to a nephrologist. And he recommended a guy. I kid you not. His name was actually Dr. Parrot. Doctor? Parrot. 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 Yeah. Okay. Like the bird. So <laughs> we got on a plane, went to London. Cause he's all the ba- way to London. Because he's based out of there. And so hold on, you had established that this was serious enough for you to go to London, right? I mean, parents are worried like, yeah. yo, we're going to get on a plane, see what's up. Okay. And thankfully, because of my dad's business, we were able to travel a lot. So he's like, yo, let's go. So we got on, we hopped on a plane and went down. 
And Dr. Parrott assumed that it was something called a kidney dysplasia, which is pretty much when one kidney is weaker than the other. And unfortunately, unlike normal scenarios where, you know, people can live with one kidney, in the case of a dysplasia, it has a negative impact on the healthy kidney over time. So quite like, "Mm, bro, you got to sort this out ASAP. So he recommended that, well, his projections were, I will have failed kidneys by 18, uh, by 13. And at the time you cannot get transplanted as a kid. This medical world wasn't there yet. You're going to need a transplant by the time you're 18. So between 13 and 18, you're going to be on dialysis to make matters worse. He projected that I was going to be a lot shorter malnutrition due to these issues. My parents said, no. We're going to go for second opinion. That second opinion became a third, became a fourth, hundreds of opinions. I remember throughout my youth, I probably have seen all kinds of doctors in all parts of the world, from the medical scientists to the Islamic doctors mm. to I have visuals of faded memories of being with the like voodoo doctor like in a dark room red lights incense burning and saying things that do not make sense and like burning stuff like you know when you have the bahud burners and like we'll write stuff on papers and burn it and like strange things wow all like, parts of the world <laughs> parents parents are willing to try anything yeah you know like they're not gonna for their son yeah, yeah. you know i don't think and that's what i feel like any parent within their right mind would do like yo whatever we'll do whatever it takes exactly right um and shout out to them because like they did not hold back they went for all of it okay and as as this is happening sorry that I no please by the way go for it as this is happening how are you doing day to day so day to day was challenging because eventually you got to go to school Mm. school was very challenging when i was very young because Mm. i had to have spare pair of pants with me just in case something happens i was completely different environment um i didn't know i went to an international school and to make matters worse it's a time where i was one of probably like 20 or 30 black kids in that school as well so that brought its own racial conflicts and different challenges so it was an unusual experience it forced you to deal with the ugly sides of life from a very young age whether you wanted to or not it, it was forced upon you on one end, you're told you're not okay, yeah. right? You're not healthy enough. There are all these concerns. You can get pulled out of school to go to the hospital one day. Another day, if you didn't drink enough water, something happens, you fall sick in school, and now you got to get taken to a hospital. So I remember I had to have a note from the doctor to say that if I ever need to go to the bathroom, they got to let me go. And the nurses have been briefed, you know, the school medical and the administration was briefed. So you're, you become hyper aware of, mm. I'm not like At the other kids. At a very young age. Right. Yeah. Like clearly you're not like the other kids. So this affects your bladder function. So this affects your kidney. It affects your bladder function. It affects the entire system. So like, as in from other kids in, in school, all they know is, you might not be able to control yourself if you need to go to the bathroom. So that's the interesting bit because now there's a shame factor Yes, that's involved. So how do you control that? And that became one of those things where I never give, I fought to never give them that opportunity as mm-hmm. much as possible where if anybody says anything, it's like, no, you didn't, you lying. And then kind of get into a fight or like make, there's an argument of some sort that happens there. Otherwise, you know, skip school, get a change of clothes. There were, 
stops that were put in place to avoid these confrontations as much as possible. It's quite complex yeah. to really fathom what's going on. Right. And all you want is to be normal. 100%. You just want to fit in. Yeah, like you want to be like the other kids, you know? To develop a self-defense mechanism, you start hanging out with the rowdy kids. You start hanging out with the troublemakers. Tru- yeah, you, you start to like- find a way to fit in. Thankfully, um, my brothers and I, my brother and I were quite athletic, so sports became a go-to. That was a space where there's camaraderie, there's community, other uh, other players. So it was basketball, it was soccer, it was baseball, cross-country races. So like track and field, where we'd compete in every sport. Mm. So that became a comfort space. Mm. Um, also being a class clown on one side, like you know, you create environments that you fit into. And a space, and more importantly, is spaces where you can control narrative, mm. right? So you want to dominate the conversation or dominate and re-steer the conversations, whichever way you want to take it, in ways that you know you're in control of it. That way, it doesn't turn around and become about me. Yeah, you want. Yeah, you don't want it. You don't want it, the fingers on you. Exactly. So these were the self-defense mechanisms that you've developed. Yeah, very good point. Yeah, sports is a big confidence builder as well for kids. So my goodness. Big yeah. time. And you're talking about a time where I quickly understood that not all black people, not all blacks are created equal, where I was racially um, profiled, got into fights for that. But then on the other end, you're seeing people loving the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. They're loving Martin. They're loving hip hop artists and athletes. And, you know, there's an admiration and they're coveted. But then you're looked at com- in a completely different lens. Was that confusing for you? Incredibly. And then now you got to change your look. Now you mm. got to change your style and you change the way you speak where you start to like, well, okay, maybe it's because of how I look. I got to look like that. Right. So you have to be like African-American. Yes. So now you're adopting this African-American look because African only in Sudanese and an, and an Arab speaking black person too. Yeah. Yeah. You ain't that it's cool. Not cool. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So now you start adopting these different things. And as a kid, you don't understand it yet. Mm. You don't understand what hip hop culture is about. You don't understand the African-American struggle. You don't understand the history of slavery. None of it. You just felt like, I want to be liked. I want to be looked at differently. 100%. Right, right. And you can right. identify. Because you see your likeness. Yes. Right. And right? it's like, well, mm. yo, we're the same, but we're treated different. So we're like, all right, cool, let's do this. This is what we're going to be doing. And it wasn't a conscious decision in the way I'm making it seem, right? But it was one of those things where you just start to pick up cues and you adopt that. Natural. Um, and, and, that's how, and that's how it went. So for the most part, it started off like that. But the more I got into it, the more excited I became about trying to understand it. So I found myself digging deeper. Like I wouldn't enjoy social studies class in school, but then I find myself reading Malcolm X I find myself reading Martin Luther King and reading like just black culture and black history and educating myself in it to understand how did we get here and how did we get here it's interesting because actually it's not how I got here but I I associated myself so much that I need to know all that and I was reading all that and there was a disconnect from Sudanese culture because when I would visit Sudan on holidays you're a reject and um and back then in Sudan they have we have a term for it which is um, awlad al-mukhtaribin. 
We got it too. Right. In Jordan, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, now I understand what you mean by reject. Right. Yeah, like, okay. so like as in you're like a Delu, like mama's right. voice. Right, yeah. exactly, kids. exactly, yeah. right? Yeah. And there's also things like in Sudan where it's like Shahada Arabiya, where um, co- um, high school grads that go to study college in Sudan, for example, they're like, oh, Shahada Arabiya, because that means they studied in the Arab world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they and they moved to Sudan for university. So they're seen as like soft or sometimes a little dumber or whatever like they're mocked for it right so you get roasted the one thing we have quite similar with hip-hop culture is you get roasted for anything like you get roasted for being <laughs> smart and you get roasted for being dumb. like it doesn't matter you're gonna get roasted <laughs> yeah. so that you gotta have thick skin to tolerate it so that was a big part of it as well so like you go there you're looked at differently and now you got to prove yourself to them that you're rough and rugged and dirty and can tack and can handle it with them right mm. um and then but that that's no matter what you do it's never good enough mm-hmm. because uh, you and them you and everybody knows eventually you're going to get on a plane and go back home right, right? For sure. yeah, yeah, and right. and you're also dealing with another element of your health exactly and yes. that doesn't help because as a kid, mom would be like, la, 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 don't drink from the tap water. Here's a bottle Makes of you water. More than Ex- whether you want to or not, that is going to force a stigma on you. Yeah. So <laughs> it doesn't help. So on top of being <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, it's like, la, la, la. So, yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, they didn't have it. But nowadays reference would be like, sanitize your hands before you come inside. Or- right. Now, what do you do? You rebel. Yeah. Your response is, well, I'm not down with this. We're going to rebel through everything. So there starts bad friendships, there starts skipping school, there starts um, meeting and hanging out with people that, you know, not family friendly in any kind of way. By the time I was in seventh grade, hmm. while I was in seventh grade, I got, I got expelled from school. Expelled? Whoa. Yeah, I mean, you because of my dad. No, no, no. Because, yeah, which I'm coming <laughs> to. You. So because my dad's got great, my dad is very interesting. So first, when my dad brought me to the school, and I don't want to name and shame, so I'm, I'm kind of skipping these bits. Yeah, that's But fine. when he first brought me there, there was this wonderful lady that was the principal of the school. Quite old and militaristic in her style. My dad brought me in for my first day of school, dropped me off, left. By noon, his phone's blowing off. Eventually, a secretary interrupts the meeting. She's like, yo, the school's been calling a bunch of times. You got to go now. And my dad drives back, it's first day, drives back to the school. The security at the gate is like, are you Mr. Tom? And I was like, yes. It's like, they're looking for you. Get in. So uh, her name was Miss Miles. I don't know if she's still alive. Hope hope she is. Um, he, come, he comes into her office and she's like, yo, take your son. Here's your check. We do not want your money. He's out. <gasps> first grade. Whoa. And my dad's like, wait, wh- what happened? She's like, he's running up and down the corridors screaming with the other kids. And my dad looked at her and said, well, that's why he's here. He is your problem from 8 a.m. till 3 p.m. Your problem, not just academics. You fix that in the evening. He's my problem till then you fix it. And he leaves. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> he's like, I'm not taking him home. He's like, he's your problem. So, so honest um, and straightforward. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So unlike most parents who get super protective about their kids, my dad's like, no, no, no. Fix him. <laughs> so seventh grade. But running and screaming like any other kid. Exactly. But that it's, it was, um, I told you, it's like those. British old school boarding schools militaristic type uh, principle uh-huh. where she takes no nonsense from any kid. You walk in corridors, you say, Good morning, miss. Yes, ma'am. You know, like all those be the the politeness of 
that education system. So she wanted to enforce all that in kids. And she f- figured, I guess, I was a hopeless case at the time. But it's first grade. You're what, seven? Yeah, that's crazy. That's a kid being a kid. Like, yeah. you really can't. I'm can't just getting, me. I'm just like, I can hear Pink <laughs> Floyd. Like, we don't need no right? education. <laughs> right? That's, that's what it was. Yeah. children running in the halls. <laughs> Like little kids running around. Yeah. It, it reminds me, what was it the the kindergarten kids in South Park? Yeah. Right? That little tribe. That's what that's what it looked like. <laughs> um so yeah, so seventh grade, I, I got expelled because I played a prank on a teacher. I got those whoopee cushions. Whoopee yeah. cushions? What what whoopee cushions? The things that fart when you, you know, sit you sit on it, it makes a farting noise. A farting yeah. thing, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so but that was the last straw. Like it was Accumulative of uh-huh. of um, mm. disciplinary issues. So, like a whoopee cushion gets you expelled, right? I guess in the Middle East, farting is like a big deal. Yeah, and plus, mm. like this again, it's a lot of disciplinary problems where you're a class clown, you get into fights, all these issues. But I think academically, we always perform really, really well. So the Im- par- immigrant parent story. And a B plus is a fail. You better keep your A's, right? So right, yeah. academically, we did well, but that was very confusing. <laughs> like, yeah. you're smart, but why are you doing all this? So because of my dad's relationship with the school by that point, they're like, look, like you could expel him, but he won't get accepted anywhere. How about you kind of take him with you, get him out of here? We can't keep him. Mm. So takes me to another school. And that was such an interesting one because I went from a co-ed, you know, high premium school in Sharjah suddenly to a segregated school that lo- that was built like prison I mean just two floors these corridors and a recess area <laughs> so, and just all boys club and there if I thought I knew how to fight I learned how to fight in that school oh um, man you remind me of my school right now <laughs> <laughs> but yeah go on that one was savage I mean you get into fights for the dumbest reason. Somebody looked at you the wrong way. <laughs> Someone tackled you somehow you don't like in a soccer game. Boys being boys, it was disgusting. Um, the things that went in class or in bathrooms, like it was just horrible. Mm. And some students, and it was bad. It was bad in the sense that like, you know, high school students would wait outside a teacher's house one day because they don't like the grade and they would beat up a teacher. Whoa. It was savage. Whoa. <laughs> like that's next level yeah you just do not want to be part of that system um Mm -hmm. while i was there again academically did really really well and my dad was like listen you're smart let's try and get you back because this does not look too good and they're tired of me coming back home with beat up uniform and like bruised up face so they accepted me but under strict conditions he's got to perform well and i think because of their relationship over the years with them the school my old school took me back um now i was back there but coming from where i came from for that year i saw things differently because not only was it a hood rough school but also the kind of thing where you had the girls campus across a wall and i realized i didn't have that perspective i didn't come from i came from a a co-ed school it wasn't segregated so it didn't matter like where the girls were like it wasn't something that i would think about but then there there was this like i explain it like if you don't feed dogs for a while and how rough they get that's the excitement they got like yo girls like yo girls man (laughs) right like yeah like no no like i mean girls you know (laughs) and i wouldn't get it at first i'm like 
why why is this so exciting yeah, <laughs> yeah and like raging hormones of teenagers like it was terrible so i came back <laughs> and one i was grateful that i was back i'm like oh this felt felt um memorable i remember this i i know this world really well but also i came from a place to fight like i went to fight club and came back you know now i'm back in a suit and tie type office space so i saw things differently but gave me a lot of advantages in that way i guess but now you can't really say shit no more like i will pull you to the back (laughs) to the back of the building and we're gonna you know duke this out so that was an interesting upgrade and mm. uh that i had so mind you with all that happening in school still health was still a problem i was seeing a lot of doctors and there were times where i would miss school for weeks in the sense that i remember one ramadan i so i don't fast right because of this incident one ramadan i was like yeah you should try fasting and i gave it a shot over the weekend and you know i'm at home everything's fine but i had a an inflammation in my kidney due to lack of um due to being dehydrated so i was rushed and i spent two weeks in the hospital Oof. so quickly i learned like i right, so fasting ain't a thing bro like don't don't come near it so what other like dietary restrictions so at the time the dietary restrictions weren't um there weren't that many but as i got older my kidneys got worse they increased so there is a restriction on potassium so for example i can't have as much tomatoes um dates bananas were like big no-nos at some point Mm. um there are restrictions on i mean because of kidney malfunction one of the biggest things that kidney kind of get rid of tends sometimes tend to be calcium so now i'm on vitamin d and calcium pills and i was never a kid that committed to my medication um again it was just a reminder that you're you're not normal and you're a kid like i'm busy being a child like i don't care about these things because of that i never really committed to them really well but what was what the doctor predicted true by the time you So were in good 13? news it wasn't. Okay. By then I'm in high school like nothing that the doctor predicted was happening. But So you guys just ignored it. Um we didn't ignore it. It scared us enough to set precautions in place. Precautions. Okay. Right. Okay. So for example, I ended up connecting so doctor after doctor different people recommending different ones and then doctors here, doctors abroad. Eventually I can't remember off the top of my head who was it, but they recommended a doctor here. It was like Dr. Adil, great doctor, one of the best nephrologists in the world. He's got a clinic in Dubai now. And it was a thing, like he just set up a clinic in Dubai. He's the guy to go to. And turns out he was. So we made it a point to have regular appointments with him. I would go see him every few months or so and just do tasks, checkups, and just get updates from him. So that became my part of my regimen of like constantly seeing this guy. Mm-hmm. And what he did that was wonderful is that he kept such a close eye that he would let us know, okay, you got to do more of this or less of that. And to the best of my capabilities at the time, I'll do that. If it felt like an inconvenience, most parts, I wouldn't. Because then again, you're just a rebellious teen. Teens rebel. It's part of What is up. something he would ask you to do <laughs> that you wouldn't do? Mostly like with my medication, for example. Um, I remember I started smoking as a kid and I told, um, funny enough, my mom found out. And I was like, no, no, I'll tell my dad. So I went and I told my dad myself. I'm like, no, I got to tell him. You can't find out from other people and he's not going to be okay. So I told my dad and obviously forgetting the hell, like he, it was, he was so disappointed that it was, and it was so heartbreaking that he sat me down. He gave me a, a talk and I always hated my dad's talks because mm-hmm. that 
it's like emotional blackmail that will break you down mm. and i tell my dad like i'd rather get slapped around than like having these conversations because <laughs> they were they were quite tough to hear and eventually i ended with like listen just if you must don't let your brother see you don't want to be a bad example you're the eldest even hearing that i was like damn it's a lot how of old were you when you started smoking 15 Oh, that's so young. Yeah, 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 no, like, I, I, I was rolling with a bad crowd. Omar's like, well, you took all the fun out of smoking. Now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, you just decided to tell your parents, like, as a fifteen-year-old. No, his mom found out. No, my mom initially found out. My mom heard around, cause, and I, my mom sensed it because, like, my school uniform smells like smoke. Mm. Oh, and, yeah, like, if I, and let's be honest, like, there's nothing is more telling than a mother's instinct. Hands down. Also, I don't think a 15-year-old as as, smooth no, no. as as they think they <laughs> no, are. They like, they are. probably have no. cigarettes in like their the Like, the pack is sticking and out. <laughs> and it's like, oh, wait, what? No, what, what are you talking about? The kids, <laughs> kids think they're the best liars, but they, like, yeah. suck. Like, what? Huh? <laughs> what are you yeah. saying? No, that pack is for yeah, Abdullah. What? <laughs> what are you talking about? And they go to the room like, so. <laughs> yeah. suckers. <laughs> and I was quite daring. Like, you know, it'll be a weekend. I'll just go to the bathroom, start a shower, and smoke, you know? In the house, yeah. Uh, like, oh god, I'll do dumb a shit like that. Thing to do. Right? And <laughs> I remember, I, 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 one of my friends, it was, and to mother's instincts. I mean, I met this kid. We're like third graders, and my mom was like, "I don't want you hanging around with this kid. I don't like him." Third grade. Turns yeah. out she was right. Kid was horrible. Like the kind of kid that would light up a cigarette with his mom and hang out. Like you know, it's like somehow something told my mom his home environment is not good. Mm. I'm like. I think that's the mother's instinct. Like, how could you tell? Um, that's true. That's true. So, yeah. So, I'd be jealous of him sometimes. So, like, i go hang out at his place and then, you know, light up a cigarette with him and his mom. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I'll just hang out with them. And that was, yeah. So, that was, like, OT as a, as a teen. Mm-hmm. And as I got older and health started to deteriorate, and obviously smoking makes it incredibly worse, so to answer your question, what things that I would do, this was one of them. Because now that my parents knew, I had to let him know. Like, oh, by the way, I smoke. Mm. And he looked at me like I was a total idiot. And how dare you? And he got very, he got angry the way I thought my dad would get angry. Um, and he made it clear, like, you have to find a way. To, you got to quit. Like, it's, it's not an doctor, option. doctor, eh? Yeah. yeah. For the most part, I didn't. For quite a while. So... As things deteriorated with my health and it got a lot worse, thankfully I made it to college. I made it to university. Um, initially, I was supposed to be an aerospace engineer, so I wasn't even going to be. I was going to go to Houston, learn how to design planes. And my parents were like, listen, with your health, maybe not. Maybe you want to chill a little bit, stick around. Like, no, I'm going. And it became this argument where eventually we sort of came to a middle ground where I agreed to do a semester here. Uh-huh. Or my mom wanted a year. I'm like, no, no, I'm going to do a semester, not a year. She still believed I was going to do a year. And then I'll leave. That was the agreement. Thankfully, while I was here, I started my semester, and I actually quite enjoyed it. I And I remember, I just did, like, let's just do marketing, whatever. It was just one of those things where I wasn't taking it too seriously. And for the first year, I wasn't. Even in school, I was there to have fun and enjoy college life. I wasn't here for the education in that way. Thankfully... I came across great professors that I really enjoyed their class. I'm like, wait, there's actually something interesting here. By my second, by my sophomore year, things got really bad health-wise. I wouldn't know it at the time, but 
I'd look at a photo of myself and you can tell I look sickly, mm. like Oof. very skinny, not so healthy. Um, I started a dance crew and <laughs> bless you. Um, Sorry. And I was trying to do all these activities, but I, f- I, to me, I felt okay. But when I see photos and videos of me today, I'm like, whoa, that was like, how did nobody tell there was something wrong with me? Right, you know, yeah, yeah. or maybe they did and nobody said anything. Are you fine with the naming which university you were at? I mean, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm okay with it. I don't think that I was, I was at the, I, was at, I went to AUD. AUD, yeah. Yeah. And I believe all three of us were at AUD at the same time. Oh, if really? If I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I was there in 06, 07. You, you were like, uh, you had a name for yourself there, I think. Like, I, I I've think heard so. people talk about you here yeah. and there. Yeah, I found out I still got photos of me up on campus walls. So oh, really? Yeah. To this day? Wow. So in the, biz- in the B building... The, the bottom one. The B building. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. You just brought us back. Right. I'm, I'll take you back. So the B building. Remember in the corridors, there are these little windows that are just always empty and by, on the walls. So I got some photos there apparently. Okay. And there's the new C building. Um, I got some photos up like plastered on the walls there too, which I didn't know till, till much uh, later. Uh, I'm like, oh, cool. I left an impact of some sort. <laughs> Shout out to all the AUD listeners out there. <laughs> right yo <laughs> and officially we are the knights now like it's aud knights oh, yeah. right it's yeah. a thing uh-huh. um, at our time it's like here's a jersey bro go yeah <laughs> same same now yeah. now it's official and it's a giant and like they have like nice uh, a great mascot yeah, like and nice pictures yeah like and now you can and now you got like you know team spirit branded and they gear have, like, a gymnasium which by the way the gym is wonderful kobe played there you know it's a kobe played yeah no that's way. the thing yeah they I brought, didn't know. Yeah, they brought Kobe out. It was a whole thing. Okay. See, like, by the time we were done, AUD started to shine afterwards. Right. <laughs> I mean, we left it in, in, a, in a good place, you know? Yeah, as good as it can be. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so AUD was, was one of them. So, by then, it was like, okay, you're going to need a transplant ASAP. Mind you, Dr. Pratt said 13. By the time I was 21. 21. So, I made it that far. I outgrew the height restrictions that he pointed out um my health at least you know i wasn't that malnutrition but i did get it did get bad so like all right well we got to get you prepped for a transplant and what does that mean to get get prepped for a transplant you're like well you got two options either we're going to add a kidney or you're going to go on dialysis dialysis pretty much replicates the function of a kidney but if you think about it it's this giant machine that sucks blood out of you on one end cleans it up and then pumps it back that's what it is so it's and it's a terrible experience to go through dialysis and it's how frequent um at the time like we'll get you started probably once or twice a week could go un- could be more until you get transplanted once or twice a week yeah telling a 21 year old who's enjoying college life like that oh you, that's tough yeah because you just want to have like you want to have fun other than education but like you're having fun you want to go to the parties you want to meet girls you want to do all these things right so it felt like this biggest burden on my life. Like, wait a second. For three hours to six to nine hours a week, I got to sit down and have this machine just pump blood all the time. To make matters worse, they, there's something called a fistula, which pretty much you get. Um, they cut your wrist. Uh, they cut your hand open right by your wrist and just a little, before, a little bit before your elbow. And they insert this pipe, basically, which they use for the dialysis. And they stitch it on both ends. Right, and the reason is one end takes blood out, the other end brings blood, right. brings back blood. So that was what I was supposed to be 
dealing with. So it would stay in your arm? For long. It can stay there for years. I didn't want that. And my argument was like, wait, I train, I play basketball, I go to the gym, I run a dance crew, like I do all these activities. Like, no, I can't have this. So I was like, oh, well, you got to get surgery then, get transplanted. And I'm like, okay. I don't know Dude, how that's going to work. The priorities of a 21-year-old. But the what are priorities? <laughs> what is a priority? <laughs> Yo, you're like at that age, your priorities are all twisted. It yeah. just you do not know what's right from wrong. Yeah. It's like life and death and you're like, "But we got to But yo, we got a gig coming up. Are you kidding? We finna get paid. Like, we about to make some money. <laughs> we can't let AUS win. <laughs> Not this year. Never. <laughs> exactly. Like, you're living in like like one of those like Disney like right? dance group like com- movies. And like complete <laughs> denial. Like yeah. complete, yes, complete denial, denial of life. Mm. Like you really do not understand what is it that you're faced with and what is it that you're arguing for. And also in a big way, it's like you're you're still constantly battling this idea that you're not normal. And there's... And my parents were against it in their case because they're like this faint belief that this is somehow going to miraculously change at some point. Mm. Like my parents had this deep belief that every step of the way, this is going to change and it's not going to be the case anymore. Uh, like you're going to wake up one day and it's gone. And like you can, it'll work out. Yeah, like you can wish it away. I think I was a bit more pragmatic than that, but I was my denial just was just stupid. But theirs was just of hope, you know, mm. that something somewhere somehow is going to reverse all this. Which wasn't the case, unfortunately. So you went with the kidney transplant option. So my dad... Because you're a kid and you want like a quick fix. I mean, it w- uh, to be honest, for the most part, it wasn't up to me because, well, all right, what's the donor list like? What does this program mm-hmm. look like? Like These questions. And yeah. interestingly enough, prior to my surgery, my knowledge about any of this was close to none considering the experience I've gone through because all I've had was resentment. Mm. Strictly. Like I did not want to hear it. I did not want to deal with it. It's like when your parents lecture you, as my mom would used to say, like, oh, it goes through one ear and out the other. Like, that's what it was. I did not want to deal with any of it. I won't listen to it. Yeah. So I don't even understand what is he saying. Like, he's telling me these are my options. I don't understand what this guy's telling me. I was not listening. Then it becomes a family conversation. I'm like, I don't know, whatever you guys want to do. My dad's like, all right, we're going to go through transplant. Thankfully, at the time, there was a program that was started by Sheikh Khalifa Medical City in Abu Dhabi that introduced a transplant program and these great doctors that were brought in and this whole facility and it was a big deal and they're doing certain um, a number of operations for free for mm. free transplant surgeries are you're talking about hundred fifty thousand dollars plus yeah. wow yeah wow. so wow. they were doing them for free at the time and they're like yo gotta get on that list to get on that list you gotta get recommended all right dr adil do your thing put it. and that was my dad's talking to him i didn't know about this for the most part like i don't know they agreed that they're gonna put me forward for the program okay i go to see them i never forget i met roberta big canadian woman in her like 50s no bullshit woman like blunt transparent and you can't bullshit or bullshit or like she will call you out on it she's all up in your face like she mm-hmm. does not take anything from nobody and she is the head of the transplant unit <laughs> like that they're the transplant coordinators that manage the pre and post surgery life for patients all right put me through the program start getting a lot of tasks done and op- how are how are your parents in the background are they nervous about super this super nervous or they're just 
Oh my god, they going were terrified. Like, They're going along with it because they know that's the best option, but they were terrified. Uh, I mean, you can feel it. So now we're going through this exercise of figuring this out. And my dad swears he is going to be the donor. Now this starts arguments. I never saw my parents argue at home before. Wait, your dad? Yeah. And he's like, no, no, no. I'm going to be the donor. And my mom's like, no, I'm going to do it. And it begins this argument where like, no, no, no. I'm going to do it because I have been sort of the financial provider of the family. And I didn't contribute enough. So I want to do this. And my dad was adamant. He was not going to be shaken from his opinion. Question. Go for it. The program, it tells you that you have to find the donor? They don't no, get no, no, a donor? No. So, yeah. So, when it first started, the law here was that it had to be from a living donor. That's a relative. Okay. It has to be yeah. a relative. Yeah. Otherwise, it opens doors to black market yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. concerns, kidneys oh. being bought and sold. So, there are very strict regulations about uh, kidney don. I mean, not just kidneys, but any, uh, any organ donation. Interesting. Yeah. And your both of your parents were like a match. Thankfully, we're all the same blood type. The whole family. Nice. Wow. Yeah. Are there other factors to be a match other than blood type? Yeah. So, um, what they would more than blood type? What the real? F- I mean, blood type was the old way of doing things. Uh-huh. What it really is is, um, as science improved, it's understanding antibodies. Do you have antibodies or not? So they take a blood sample from you a blood sample from a donor and they'll check for antibodies so if there are no antibodies for the most part you're good blood type match makes things a lot easier so in good news that worked out and we had to see a therapist to confirm that we're of sound mind and body and we're ready to do this and we're going for the surgery and your dad is the donor my dad is the donor and how does that make you feel or are you still like (laughs) imagine what's going through your Um, head at this point I did not know how to react because when my dad decided to do it, there are moments in life that really make you feel super small. That's one of them where it's like really, really small. Mm. Um, And you realize you're a selfish asshole. Like that's one of those moments. And we're going through the surgery. we're, We're getting prepped. And this is the point where I really understood. That's when it hits you, like what's about to happen. But also you could have made you could have somehow reversed it you could have somehow slowed this progression down there's a lot that could have been done but again a dumb rebellious teenager not knowing any better could have never predicted this like you start reviewing regrets everything you're you're backtracking everything and you're flagging every single point that things could have been done differently and it's not just you your dad's involved it's not just me it's my entire family right they're I mean, the money, the sleepless nights, the heartache, the disappointment, the mental and emotional drain, the trauma. Like, yo, I took them through the mud mm. without seeing them. That's what I was doing. So it's quite not only selfish and dangerous, but in a way abusive as well. And abusive, unfortunately, due to ignorance. So... That all hits you the night before, in a way. Like, you start to really understand, like, yo, this is happening, right? Because the night before, they took my dad in to prep him. And by prep, they have to insert a um, an IV and a main line. Your main lines are your um, the arteries that connect to your neck. So he had to get an IV up here, which I did as well. Like, I had one in my neck. I had both wrists and like the inside of your elbows like i was all iv'd up but that's the main one for during surgery 
Uh-huh. So now my dad, I, I saw my dad go through that, which I'm not used to seeing my dad in a vulnerable position. Of course. And when you see that, that's when it all sinks in. So as we're going through all this, the next day is the surgery. Now people, actually, people have been coming in for about a couple of weeks. And in Sudanese culture, and this is something I think I never realized I had, but people are lining up to be donors. Mm-hmm. And my family was rejecting them. My parents were rejecting them, and people are lining up, and my parents are rejecting them. Uncles, aunts, people I've never even heard of. Not because they liked me, not because of anything I've done in my life, truly, but rather because of what my family and my parents have done for them. And everybody felt like they owed my dad or they owed my mom and they want to repent. Like, yo, I'll give you my kidney. Don't worry, I'll donate mine to your son. You know, it was that. And people are flying in and stopping their lives. Like people left their lives, flew in to be here. And now there's this huge community, hundreds of people that are here for the surgery, which in a way I'm like, I didn't ask for this. But like now it's incredibly overwhelming that there are all these people in the hospital and all these people are coming and like take getting hotel rooms, paying for tickets and, you know, really stopping their lives. Mm. So like, how, how do I deal with all this now? <laughs> it's just yeah. so overwhelming. They're like, I do not know what to do with this information. Like, it's just so confusing. Is it a positive feeling or is it like you feel burdened by it? Incredibly burdened. It was not positive whatsoever. As I tell the story in hindsight, I'm incredibly grateful but back then it was not positive i was just overwhelmed and i felt like a burden and why are these people here why are they doing this and they really shouldn't be here and i get it they're doing it for my parents but like what did i do to deserve all this Mm. and there's a and then that burden and regret and i should not even be here maybe it's better if i died now these thoughts start to creep in that you've never had before yeah so go through the surgery surgery goes pretty well dad is doing great how long was the surgery? I was doing fine. It's about, they, I think it's about four hours each. So it's like a full office day <laughs> from morning till So your dad evening. goes in first? My dad goes in first. While they're going through the surgery, I get um, pulled in so I can get prepped. So there's the operating room and right outside is the pre-op room. In the pre-op room, they sent me with this um, immunosuppressant to, con- to reduce my immune system. More like kill it, like immune system down Whoa. to zero. Okay. And, you know, as as soon as they do that, they're going to put you to sleep. And I thought it was going to be one of those sort of um, uh, gases that can knock out. No, no. It was, um, it was in the same main line in the artery. It's, it's liquid. And they tell you to come back from 10. And, like, I don't even remember. I was just, like, I remember the nurse was cute. <laughs> and that was it. I was out. Um, <laughs> that's all I remember. Because, like, I looked down. Like, they got some nice nurses here. Um, and... That's, yeah, I don't even remember counting. And, uh-huh. and But what I do remember, like, I can fight this and I'm going to stay up. No, yeah. you, can't. you can't. You don't even notice that you went out. You're just out. Exactly. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And But uh, when you're out, as you're going, yeah. you know that your dad's, like, my dad's in there. Yeah, he's almost done. I know that he's inside. I don't see him. He doesn't see me. Yeah. Um, and then as I get pulled in, he gets taken back to the ICU. Mm-hmm. Right? I get taken in operations done successfully and the like there on ice mm-hmm. or something and it's so funny like you i remember telling the do- no i'm, I'm out He's i'm just, out. i'm oh, knocked sorry. down yeah. <laughs> pay attention <laughs> right but what i do remember like i remember telling the doctor like is there videos i could watch do you guys record this how does this thing go and, like, and he looked at me like i was crazy like no man what is wrong with you like, can i see it on youtube later <laughs> yeah like what is <laughs> wrong with you kid so 
And then I just remember again, woken up in the ICU later. I had those tubes going through my nose and to come into my room, it feels like those movies where you kind of go through this little tunnel, spray something and you got to put on masks and gloves and like completely covered up. Then you can come in and you're just there for a couple of days or two to three days. And if you're okay, and they, by day two, they try to get you to try and step, sit down a little bit, try to move. And day three, they try to get you to stand. Um, after that, you move to the ICU for, th- uh, sorry, to the ward for a couple of three, four days and then you're out. Did you feel like you had a new kidney? I f- was super drugged up. And the, this is the part that I forgot. This is the coolest bit. They, they give you this little button in your hand. Um, it's like a remote that has one button on it. And it just shoots morphine into your system. Ooh. So whenever you feel pain, you go for that. And I remember I sounded like, wait, what? And I try to press what? it. But <laughs> unfortunately... Like it, it, calling your friends, like drunk <laughs> dialing down, like, hey, guys, what are you doing? It turns out I can't do that because it's it's set to 45 minutes every time. So uh, I can only do it every 45 minutes. It didn't matter. I was still, <laughs> I'd press the button every two minutes. Um, and it's just to help with the pain. But, you know. Yeah. Afterwards, we get taken out of the hospital. We booked a hotel in OW next to the hospital in case anything you want to be around. And there's this very strict system of uh, patient recovery. Um, most hospitals around the world, I think, will stop. Will get you to a point to you get tested just twice a month, just to make sure everything's okay. Here, they're super regimented, where it's like, no, no, no. Every two to three months, you have to come and get t- tested to make sure the kidney's functioning okay. Even if you've been twenty years with a new kidney, you still got to do that. And all of this is still under the umbrella of free. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's everything post-op everything all of it and that's impressive i believe i was like patient number five that got transplanted with them mm. that was one of the early guys early ones in the system oh jeez. uh yo straight <laughs> up and at first and I, I joke about this when we went through lockdown here i'm like yo i've got quarantine phd because i had to quarantine as post-transplant anywhere i go i had to wear a mask and it felt weird in the sense that if everybody's wearing masks, that's okay. But if you're the only person walking in the street wearing a mask, <laughs> you look, you're, you're, you stand out. Yeah, yeah, right? sure. yeah. Back then, yeah, I'd be like, oh God, that person's so paranoid yeah, or something. Exactly. Like, well, what is wrong with him? Why is he wearing a mask everywhere? And now you looked at everyone <laughs> now and like, you're like, welcome like, to bro, my world. I've been doing this. <laughs> <laughs> so by the second or third week, what starts to happen is the, you remember that immunosuppressant, I get it, yeah. in surgery, starts to sort of clearing out of my system and instead i'm on a mountain of pills i'm taking medication five times a day like the prayers like they're set and in time and i had to make sure it's taken at the right time because there's a system for it and if you get your delay or you know you don't take it on time it could have a negative impact so you have to take immunity suppressants for life forever yeah but then that means you're prone to getting sick all the Mm -hmm. time uh, how often do you get sick a year? So like clockwork, every time the weather changes, um, twice a year. But I take flu shots, which help. Mm-hmm. So okay. I always take the flu vaccine. Um, when I do, I don't get sick. The one year I miss a flu vaccine, I will be getting sick when it's <laughs> by the time it's winter. Um, this year, thankfully, none because I was just home. Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> So really, it wasn't it wasn't much for it. Ironically, you didn't need a vaccine <laughs> during COVID. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. So, <laughs> 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 
Um, so yeah, so now a few weeks in, as this immunosuppressant, the the industrial version from the surgery started to wear off, I wake up with a fever. Rule number one, you get a fever, you rush to the hospital, chances are your body might be rejecting or you got a viral infection, one Ooh. of the two. Both cases you do not want to have. Rush to the hospital, emergency, get checked, guess what? Body's rejecting. No. Yeah. And what they came down to the conclusion of, turns out my immune system is powerful. I actually needed a lot more immune suppression than what they initially assumed. And they were like, okay, we're going to start you on this new medication that we didn't give you before. Like, wait up, doc. Why did I not get this before? Well, usually this uh, in the U.S., we give this to the African-Americans only because they have a superior immune system. And, you know, it's uh, the survival of the fittest theory of history, right? If you look at slavery history, you take the strongest of us, the strongest people you take on the ship, some die, some make it, and then they breed, and then they breed, and the next generation, and the following. So they got very, they're able-bodied, they're very strong, strong immune system. So they're the ones that get it. We don't usually give it to regular patients. I'm like, well, son, looks like you got to give it to me now. So... Oh, that's, a, that's like that's like wow. medication and a bit of a compliment at the same time right like because i'm like i i wish i knew that because at least we would have avoided all this problem i have superior genetics but also like what kind of like bragging right is it like bruh i got i got that badass <laughs> badass immune system so you know <laughs> so like all right cool let's let's do this and as we're figuring that out unfortunately things got so sour that i had to go on dialysis which is not a fun experience because you come in, you go through dialysis, you lose weight to like because it clears out that much of you, which you can get dizziness, you, you get vomiting, you get quite sick afterwards because it's such a shocking experience to the body. Mm-hmm. Like really think about it. Your kidneys are like that big. They're small, right? Like they're s- smaller than your fist. But to be able to replicate a kidney function, they build this giant machine the size of a bookshelf. Mm, that's like, insane right yeah and so it's, it's just fascinating how the human body operates seriously so now i'm going through dialysis and they're trying to clean it up they're trying to force my body to accept the kidney they're experiencing with medication then i start on plasma dialysis which i didn't know what plasma is till then and what is it it's a um it's um it's generated from your blood but plasma is like this golden liquid that they, so the dialysis machine takes your blood and then it also refines it further that it pulls out plasmas and then they change the plasma in your blood. And it, and when they bring it, it's like these bags of golden liquid, which was very interesting to see. And mm. for the most part, those are faint memories. I, I can go back in and out of them, but they're faint because I'm just super drugged up. I remember one night my dad was with me. He's like, yo, I'm going to go pray or something. I'll come back. And nurses would come and check on me regularly, like clockwork, they, you know, and when they change shifts, this nurse came in and I don't know if this guy had the sniffles or whatever it was. I caught whatever he had it. I caught it and I start coughing. And at first it feels like a little thing in the back of your throat is just coughing and I'm coughing and it gets worse. And I got to where like I'm pressing the button, calling all the nurses and I'm just I can't stop coughing to a point I start coughing blood and then all I remember I'm coughing the bed is shaking and I pass out mm-hmm. I woke up a few days later in the ICU with this giant face mask that is tied to the back of my head and I was on a ventilator 
and it wasn't helping me breathe it was breathing for me my lungs stopped they crashed completely they do not work they don't operate they're non-existent and the doctor was like so we kind of had to make a decision save your life save the kidney uh, we kind of went with life so that's what we're going to go for I'm like great great choice thanks bro. appreciate it i think you made yeah, a great seriously. one you, you know what you're a smart doctor good job so, <laughs> so like thanks appreciate it so that's what they went with and to be able to do that they got to reduce the immunosuppressants to let my immune system develop a little bit fight and that could also impact the kidney so like tough call tough space that's to be a in balancing yeah and at the same time it's like well and the way I explained it is this machine is doing the breathing for you think of it like a lawnmower we're trying to kickstart your kidneys from scratch and that's that's exactly what it is and every day somebody would come take it off and see if i could breathe oh no 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 put it back on that and it was and it's interesting because it shoots air in and sucks and it shoots air in and it sucks and i just had to live with that and you're awake i'm wide awake and i can't take it off like you just you got to deal with it all i think at the at the time like well i'm done now this is it this is this is the end of it like that's where your mind goes and people would come and see you and they'd check in on you and everybody was crying. And I'm like, please don't. Cause I felt, and I think there's an overwhelming guilt of just don't cry for me. I don't feel like I deserve those tears. Mm. Um, so what do you do? You put a tough front and pretend to be okay. And we're like, you're right. And I just put a thumbs up. I'm fine. Don't worry. And I remember as things started to get better, my lungs kick started. They'd come in like, Hey, how you feeling? And it's like, I'm doing great. And like, that's all the lung capacity I had, like just single breaths. <laughs> and I'd have this sort of a physiotherapist that would come and help me and teach me how to breathe again from scratch. Like you're learning the basic function of breathing and we do these exercises every day. And then when he's gone, okay, you got to practice those four or five times a day. And, and thankfully lungs made it and they're like, okay, great. Now we're going to try to save the kidney or whatever's left of it. And it took a beating, a lot of scarring. They made it, they saved it. And they projected that it'll survive for two years and I'm either going to go on dialysis or get need another transplant. Oh. <laughs> so I was like, oh, great. So we made it this far, but still a lot more to go. And Roberta, to her credit, she's like, yo, you think life is hard? Wait till you get a transplant. The difficulty is the acceptance of your new life and what it looks like. Taking your medication on time, being, you know, having things like clockwork and like your life is or around those medication and pills. Like you can never run out you can never be at that point like these things like that you have to learn and learning all the different medication what they mean what each one does and what it looks like and i'm very lucky that i'm educated enough my mom's a pharmacist that i could understand these things some people don't people with language like different who come from different backgrounds if it's not in arabic or english like now you get it's explaining it to you whether in, in urdu or tagalog or any other language like or someone who's illiterate, like you will struggle to understand these things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, after 60 days in the hospital, I'm finally out figuring life back to normal. And it wasn't normal, but figuring things out. And this was all, that was my summer vacation. Like that, that's what I did. <laughs> and now I wanted to get back to school. And mom was like, no way. What are you, you can't go, uh, you can't go back to university. Your friends are nasty. You're on school campus, diseases everywhere. Things can go wrong. I'm like, see, this is what I don't want to hear. Please. I need to get back because I have been living in a bubble for a couple of months, for a few months, like for quite a while. Yes. Then, okay, let's do that. To make matters worse, I became, I gained about 20, 30 K because now suddenly you don't realize that you're 
actually sick until you go through a transplant because you have an appetite, you're actually eating, your skin clears out, like all these things that I look, I'm telling you, I look sick, like my eye sockets were sinking in, right? And now finally you're healthy and your body's trying to regulate itself and it's just hungry. Plus the medication don't help. There's um one of the side effects of the medication, they call it a moon face, like your face go round. Like, you you know, you gain weight and like mostly in your face. <laughs> what? Yeah, 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 like your face goes all round. I'll, I'll show you guys pictures. Like I look nothing like it, uh, like I do today. And I go back to school and everything was difficult. It was just dark. I hated it. I hated the students. I hated people around me. Um, I had my relationship with my ex-girlfriend at the time went really sour. I just have a had a very um, morbid look on life and i think it becomes from this heightened awareness of mortality Mm. and i'm like i just do not want to deal with any of this anymore um now i understand that's what depression looks like but back then i didn't have that language i didn't understand any of this it's just i did not want to deal with this life anymore one of the classes i was taking with this professor and Remember in AD, I don't know, I mean, maybe you guys were smart, but um, if you're ever to fail uh, a midterm, (laughs) if you're ever to fail a midterm, they ask you to sign these documents, like, hey, you you better drop my class because you're going to fail, right? Uh. So that professor asked me to do that before the midterm, like, first of all, I'm smart, two, why am I doing this? Uh. And she said that she's one of the toughest professors here. Most people either do great or fail. There is no middle ground, and I haven't been attending her 8 a.m. class, so I'm definitely going to fail. I'm like, all right, well, you're on now. <laughs> One of the things I don't like people telling me is I can't do something. Challenge accepted. So walked out with a B plus and actually barely studied just simply because it's marketing 301. Basic, basic common sense. Like for me, it was just, and I preferred open-ended questions to multiple choice because I can write. Yeah. Multiple choice is a nightmare for me because then I was like, oh, I got to choose one of these. What if it's right not one of those? <laughs> right? Yeah. So I'm like, I don't want to choose one of those options, but okay, fine, we'll do it. Um, so I walked out with a B plus and being my stubborn self, the following semester, I took three classes with her. So Dr. Sarah Kamal was like, who are you? I showed up to her class the night following semester and she laughed. <laughs> she like, looks like you've matured between the semesters. I'm like, that, I don't know if that a compliment or are you trying to diss me? Like, it felt so backhanded. Mm. I'm like, all right, cool, whatever. And she asked me to stay after class, and we had a chat. It's like, well, clearly you're smart. You know your stuff. What was up with you last semester? Like, what is all this? I told her this is what happened. I was just not in the right headspace. Like, I, could, I couldn't care less whether I'm passing or failing an 8 a.m. class. Like, really. By then, I was just done with life. She's like, well let's say you die tomorrow let's say you die today i'm like who the f says that like what are you and she's like no no like what if you do what have you done for yourself and i'm like not much really (laughs) like i was one of those questions where i had no answers to and i was embarrassed to not have an answer to and i said like well i don't know nothing like if i'm honest nothing and she's like well why don't you start figuring out what you want to do? Like, why don't you, how about you start? And at the time, I didn't know it, but I needed to hear that. I needed somebody to talk to me like that mm. and really like sort of 
slap the sense into me. Like, like a tough really, love kind like, of thing. Like, you know, yeah, like really slap you into sense, you know? Yeah. And in some ways I was offended by it, but it did leave me with a lot to think about. I'm like, oh no, I'll think about it. I'll talk to you later. And I left it at that. But it, st- it stayed with me. Like, I mean, we're doing this today. It mm. clearly stayed mm. with me. Um, Shout out to that professor. Yeah. That's a so, good, uh, good right? answer. And I spent a lot of time reflecting and writing and try to understand, okay, what is it that I want to do? What are my headed? What am I doing with my life and all these people around me? And I didn't know what I was doing, but I'm like, well, let me do something not for me and let me see what it is that I can do. And it didn't mean I had an answer, but it's the start. Like, let me figure this out. I was like, you know, just like high school, I'm going to do something that people can enjoy and be remembered for somehow, some way. So I looked around and I didn't feel like going back to dance. And I looked around, I was like, oh, well, guess what? There is no student body for the marketing and the advertising industry. So I went up to her, I was like, actually, I got an idea. How about we start a, a student body for like an advertising group? And I'm not going to run it like a student body. I'm going to run it like an ad agency. And she's like, okay, put together a proposal. Let's see what you could do. And I put together this concept and... To lack of my to the lack of my creativity at the time, I was like we're gonna call it the agency, Ugh. and <laughs> like that's what we're gonna do, and I started that. I did. I I figured out what agencies look like and how they operate in advertising, and I designed it in that way. I had a vice president, and people started joining, and we started bartering deals with other groups. Like, oh, photography club, how about you guys do shoots for our stuff? And we'll like rebrand everything for you guys. And I go to different, like, I just make all these deals mm. with other student bodies. And eventually we're getting briefs for like uh, an Arabic restaurant that's opening up in Bersha and they need branding. I'm like, yeah, cool. Let's do it. Yeah. And that's so cool. Yeah. We started getting like paid jobs mm. and I use that to kind of fund the program. And then I, I remember, um, Dr. Sarah Kamal and another professor, Dr. Dina Fowler put me forward to be part of. They, they, the university had a student program with um, uh, Leo Burnett where it was called the Leo Academy, where mm-hmm. during Dubai Links, which is an ad- advertising industry event, it was a gala and like uh, seminars, they'd build an actual academy and they put you through a sort of boot camp for a few days. And they all pushed me like, oh, you need to be part of this. Mm-hmm. It was eventually rejected because I wasn't a 3.5 GPA. I wasn't a cum laude. And Ugh. so... What I ended up doing is... I Wait, he is not a Kamalada. How could he ever How join? dare you? No. How right? will he ever be successful in life if he cannot, you Get know... The grade. So ridiculous. Yeah, right? I'm like, GPA. yo, this ain't medical school, bro. Yeah. We're, we're fine. And i like, you know what? I actually got an idea. I created the agency uh, academy program that actually sponsors students to get them into Dubai Links. And I chose myself because I was irritated and two <laughs> others. And we're the first ones to get to go Nice for the first year. And it became a thing like every year, which would select students who are who didn't get in, but actually have some kind of merit or potential and send them to go to the Dubai links. Oh, that's cool. So that's Take that. A, so yeah. that's what I did. I went, I got to experience the links and got to see what that was like. And while I was doing all that, I remember... I went to an event in Abu Dhabi and it was moderated by a radio DJ. And that was my introduction to radio. He was talking about radio this and radio that and how great it is. By then, I became a bit, uh, I'm, I'm, I've always been actually like 
in a room when they ask if anybody has questions, uh, chances are my hands up. The first one, I always have some question, and if I don't, I'll make it up mm-hmm. on the spot. Mm-hmm. And I argued with them about how actually no, we have iPods and CDs. Like, why would I need to listen to the radio? Who still listens to music radio? And we had this argument in front of everybody, and he's like, "Well, if you don't believe me, you could come shadow me on the show." And I called him out. I'm like, oh, you want me to come shadow you for real? Or are you just saying this because we're having this in front of everybody? He's like, no, no, for real. I'm like, all right, you're on. Next Saturday, I'll be on your radio show. And that's how I got myself into radio. <laughs> I started by shadowing these guys on the show. Eventually, they gave me a mic. And I learned everything in radio through them. They taught me everything there is in radio. One thing I learned during that experience is, okay, I'm, I'm a workaholic. Like, I clearly am. And... Because I submitted my final paper, my final exam, two days, let's say it was a Wednesday. By Sunday, I started my first job first day. So I had no breaks. I just jumped into work. And I've been working ever since. And I only started to realize these things in hindsight. But my childhood experience of not fitting in and not understanding and being kid of diaspora and where is home and all these questions were answered by understanding and digging into hip-hop culture. I found my home in hip-hop culture in that sense. Like, I found my acceptance, rather, not home Mm. in hip-hop culture. But I also learned that home is people. Home is not a place for me. So that became my school. So as I'm doing that, I decide to start the Can Show. The idea was conceived around September 2015. I was the only one with a radio background. I got these two guys to help me because I did... I understood how it works. I am not a sound engineer. So two rappers, one happens to be a sound engineer, a producer. I'm like, hey, guys, you want to do this show together? And they're like, yeah, actually, that's a cool idea. Let's do it. So that's how we started the Can Show. And we we started in Sharjah. And we record in Faraz's place. And as we're doing the Can Show, I realized that the most awkward thing was going to be is... Um, going to a girl and be like, hey, so we got this podcast. Do you want to come to Faraz's house in Sharjah and record with the other guys? <laughs> like, no, super awkward. So I told them, like, yo, we got to find somewhere proper to record because nobody's going to drive to Sharjah, let alone telling a girl or somebody to come in. Yeah, like a bunch of guys days. hanging yeah, out. Yeah, like, it's just it's creepy. Yeah. What you need is a female co-host. Exactly. <laughs> Which, by the way, funny thing is, the whole point of the can show when I started was that it was to be the voice of the others the third culture kids kids of diaspora because the can was home where it didn't matter who you were where you came from what your background is the idea of not fitting in and being challenged by that brings us together and it gave us a unified voice and a shared cha- a shared difficulty in life and when we come together it feels like home there's mm. a comfort and knowing in there where it didn't matter who you were where you came from but we felt like we knew each other the funny thing is this is march 2016 right by the end of the month i found out it was time for my second transplant six years later from my first one Mm. so it survived six rather than two years i'm here again (laughs) these doctors (laughs) these doctors are always under uh, right they're always at the back end uh, you know they're always at the back end of the story so now and i feel like i I know this was a long one but we're almost there um Now, I got to get back into surgery. Well, all right, we got to find a donor. Now, my brother decides to be a donor, Mubarak. And Mubarak, at the time of my first surgery, was underage. You have to be 21 to be considered an adult by law. He couldn't be a donor. Now he is over 21. Uh, Sorry, before we continue. Go for it. Uh, Your dad, after he became a donor and gave away one of his kidneys, 
anything oh uh, his life is better than mine uh true like well, from a health perspective he's all good yo nothing like mashallah he is like my dad wakes up for his morning prayers and where we live he'll walk around it's like a four or five kilometer walk every morning like clockwork seven days a week he does it like that's a like meditative walk um lost a lot of weight very healthy for the most part like he did much better post-op than pre-op so has it influenced him in a way to change some things in his life yeah it, it influenced him to eat better influenced him to be more conscious of what he puts in his system what he eats what he drinks and he's been very healthy since and okay. for his age, Jenny, alhamdulillah, okay. you know, he's been doing So your really family well. had a positive experience with your dad. So yeah. your brother was So it was like, an oh, easy call, right? Yeah. Now, this time, I'm doing much better than I did six years before. And also, I figured, okay, now I have experienced this. I got to put a system in place. And my boss at the time was like, actually, why don't you start recording voice notes for yourself since you're podcasting and oh mr podcast and that why do you record um sound uh, audio diaries I'm like actually that's a great idea and i started recording every day for like five minutes just my thoughts onto a mic um i still have these audios i haven't done anything with them but i have them oh. mm. now we're so now i came ready so i was like okay here's what's gonna happen not, not only do i have the can show but for the can show i was doing everything that is not sound meaning the guys dealt with the sound Booking the guests, design the website, design the logos, the artwork, podcast hosting, making sure the episodes are out, episode titles, description, episode artworks, A to Z, everything that is not sound, I did. Mm. Management, marketing, funding the show, all of it. So I'm like, great, that's going to keep me busy. I wanted to get back to work while I was like post-op. My boss was like, bro, like, no, you're off for the next two months. And... That was great. So kind of jumped into it and surgery went well. My brother bounced back really well. I was, I, <laughs> my cousins joke about this and all I remember was like, I, I was on morphine, so I don't remember this stuff. But um, I woke up and I was like, yo, I need my laptop right now. And I'm like, wait, bro, you just got to say, like, yeah, no, no, no. I need my laptop because my surgery was on a Tuesday and something told me the guys did not release the episode. <laughs> so I woke up out of my surgery I need my laptop. I got to release the episode. And everybody's looking at me like I'm crazy. Like, what are you talking? Like, no, no, no. I need to release the episode. You don't <laughs> get it. And I wasn't allowed any electronics in the ICU because it messes up with it messes with the um, the monitors. Yeah. Oh. So I'm like, well, shit, now I can't do anything for two days because I'm not allowed any electronics, no phone, no laptops. So I had to wait. As soon as I was in the ward, where is my laptop? <laughs> they brought it. And it was funny because now... The same visuals of a mainline IV going through my neck, IVs in my wrist and um, the inside of my elbows, heart monitors. And, you know, they got that little um, um, pulse, pulse monitor they put yeah. on your finger. And I'm sitting on the bed with my laptop checking on Libsyn. And I'm like, see, I knew it. They didn't release the episode. They didn't. And, I, and I remember before that, I created videos of how to release episodes for them. I knew they didn't do it. So now... I'm releasing the episode two days late, frustrated in a hospital bed. <laughs> I made a whole like how-to video just and for the And you still purpose. didn't get it right. Um, Dude, though, like I can only imagine what other um, like people working in the hospital must have thought. Like, oh, this guy's like a transplant expert. Like he wakes up from a transplant, yeah. like he's ready to move on. Like, And the nurses knew me from six years ago. Like, oh, people, wow. Right? So... But I came, I now was mentally prepped. Like, yeah. and I think more importantly than being mentally prepped, 
I felt like I had a purpose mm. that I didn't have before. Right. I had something to do. I had something that I needed to fight for where previously my life was a mess and I didn't have any of this. So now I'm like, no, no, now this is important. This is a message that people need to hear it. I'm doing something that's larger than myself. And that's what kept me driven. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find us on Instagram or YouTube for more Hamburger Generation content. Also, if you want to take a peek to the behind the scenes of Gil El Hamburger. If you'd like to go the extra mile to support us, you can leave a generous donation in any amount through our Patreon page. Link in the description. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you on the flip side.